0: Everybody to another edition of the Endgame. Joining me, as always, for the Endgame is the other half of the Endgame team himself, Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. Hello,
1: mate. And how are you
0: today on this pre-Thanksgiving day? Uh, Pre-Thanksgiving, exactly right. I'm I'm filled with thanks. I just don't know who to give it to, so I shall <laughs> I shall find someone to give it to.
1: But uh, but uh, I, I'll start with you. Thank you, Bill, for being a part of the Endgame. And, and you as well. And I guess as long as we're at that, we should thank Kahotas because it was his idea in the first place to get us to. Do knuckleheads together?
0: Yeah, absolutely right.
1: Well, we have we have a very
0: uh, different guest joining us today, and this is going to be um, a conversation unlike none of the others we've had. And why don't you talk about who's joining us today? Because this is someone that you followed a lot close to me, though I've been fascinated by what I have read. Um, so
1: just explain who's joining us. Yeah. So today we're going to be joined by Alex Berenson, who is um, closely aligned with various viewpoints re- regarding COVID. And that in itself will be polarizing to uh, roughly half the audience. But my interest is not to talk about the details of COVID, but but more the thing that I've been unable to get my head around. Just as we've talked about how does the period of, of central bank money printing end, I have been trying to think how does the period of micromanagement on the part of state, local, and federal governments end on the COVID front? How does the power get returned back to the people to where the bureaucrats aren't making decisions regularly? And obviously this is a kind of a state by state thing, but we can see that the totalitarian behavior in many countries in Europe and, uh, and, you know, my God, Australia. And I know this can't go on like this indefinitely, but I don't, I don't quite see a path to how it ends. And, and I was hoping since he's so immersed in the details, he might be able to give us some thoughts about that. obviously, this is an economic issue as well because if you had a clear idea of when the we would return to "quote unquote" normal, you, that has all kinds of re- investment ramifications. So this is not purely a socio-economic discussion, I don't think. But that's my long-winded setup to your short question.
0: No, it's it's great, and I, and I think you know it's it's good, It's going to be an interesting exercise because, um, as you as you alluded to there, you know the, the the subject of COVID has battle lines drawn at the very, very beginning. And, you know, hopefully, you and I will keep an open mind about this discussion. Hopefully, other people listening to it will too. Um, there will be people not listening to this podcast that normally listen to it because they've seen that experience. And they're like, oh, that guy, yeah. I, you know, yeah. I, which is such a shame, you know, I mean, uh, you, you just don't know, because we get so much news from the same sources. And, their credibility to me is in tatters. So, you know, I'm well, that's, interested that's in the, hearing.
1: Those are a couple of interesting sidebar conversations. As I mean, should we expect the media to return to an investigative media as yeah. we had in the past? Will the mainstream media ever become useful again, or will we have a whole new sub industries pop up? And and then, parenthetically, what about this trend towards uh, censorship? Uh, you know, which is a, a a massive variation of the cancel culture. I mean, is the censorship are we at the crest of it, or is it going to continue to go on? I mean, uh, the Orwellian day-to-day things we see are too many to even you know, talk about. But it, when, when, I, when you say that, I think everyone knows what I mean. Yeah, yeah. There, there are so many different aspects to this whole
0: coronavirus debate. And, and you're right, it goes way beyond the medical science. And you're not a medical scientist. I'm not a medical scientist. And so- nope. I steer clear of those conversations. I read a lot about it, but I steer clear of the conversations because I'm just not educated enough to to take part in them um, based on second-hand information.
1: I feel the same way, but if we're involved in the financial markets, which we are- Exactly right. You you have to have some working level of understanding of what you think is A, happening and B, what the responses are, whether you like them or not. They factor into uh, what bounces the markets around and what securities you might want to own and all those sorts of things. So I don't think any of us that are in the investment business have any choice but to formulate some sorts of opinions about this, however right or wrong we may be, or how many times we have to change our mind.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely right. And and unfortunately, you know, the, the it seems to me that we're entering the phase where the decisions that are getting made are political rather than medical-based. You know, we've, we've had a science-based period at the beginning. It was chaotic when the science was changing and new information was coming in. But now it seems everybody's so far in to the path right. they've chosen, that uh, it, it becomes very difficult to to turn on a six months and change it. Singapore did it. Um, Singapore changed their approach to COVID overnight, you know, and, and basically scrapped quarantine overnight. Complete surprise, but they're able to do it. The rest of us,
1: well, that, yes, and that, and that that gets why the the, the, the mainstream media has a, a topic has something to do with this because, you know, obviously certain topics we just don't discuss in the mainstream media for fair, you know, we can all speculate as to the reason. Yeah. Yeah. But We can't have an intellectual discussion of, well, what really did take place in Sweden? Why did they seem to be doing so well? Right. And what we can't talk about that. And just like Alex got kicked off Twitter for posting this is the Israeli data and making yep. a conclusion that now is obvious to everyone and they're all admitting it, but they still kicked him off and he was dead. Right. I've seen other people get kicked off Twitter for pointing out things that turned out to be 100 correct, whereas there's other people who are making um, claims that have now been proven to be false, and there's no ramifications. Well, this is going to be, uh, as I say, a different and
0: interesting and in equal measure. So why don't we uh, why don't we bring Alex in? All right, let's do it. Hey, Alex. There we
2: go. There you go. There he is. You thought this would never happen. <laughs> Thanks for putting up with me.
1: Ah. Uh, uh, yeah, you're. you're uh, I can only imagine how busy you are oh, yeah, yeah. On, on a regular basis. So uh, just just for a bit of background, since you're, you're not spending all your days in finance, Cohodes put us together to start this podcast, and uh, it's called The End Game because we were trying to figure out how the period of central bank money printing ends and what's going to cause that to end because it can't go on forever but it goes on way longer than you think possible. And then it seems like it'll never end, but it has to end. So that's been one of the overriding missions in our conversations with different uh, investment people. And so one of the things I've been wrestling with ever since we did the flatten the curve, you know, lockdown and flatten the curve for two weeks was how are we were ever going to get the power back from the politicians? And without spending time litigating the, the pros and cons of all the different things that have gone on in COVID. I was hoping you've probably been more immersed in this than just about anyone who can see both sides of things. How do you see this period of of the government intervention, both here and around the world, finally ending? I know we can't know, but you you must be able to kind of guess about that.
2: I mean, so, so, so that's a great question. And, and as people have pointed out, there have been several opportunities for offerings. As early as May of 2020, uh, you know, cases went down considerably in the U.S. You know, they they went down more in Europe uh, over the summer of 2020. You know, had we just sort of said, we're not, we're going to treat this like the flu and we're going to stop counting cases and we're going to, you know, we're going to sort of end the contact tracing and we're going to view this as endemic then. Uh, where You know, we're just going to turn down the heat. We probably could have ended it then, okay? I mean, and this is, when I say end it, it doesn't mean that there's no COVID, and it doesn't mean that there's no COVID surges, even. Okay, it doesn't mean that you know, okay, you're not going to have the occasional situations where a city sees a lot of cases, and you have to, you know, back up the the the, the intensive care units, or you know, twenty uh, you know twenty people die in a you know in a in a nursing home. Those things those things can obviously happen with COVID. Just as it's true that you know COVID, certainly the wild type variant, and I would say even the Delta variant, can't really do significant societal damage, it's clear that you can have these you know these these super spreading moments, and and it's clear that it's seasonal. So we didn't do that. We didn't do it in early twenty twenty or you know early to mid twenty twenty, and I think it's pretty clear that in the U.S. there was a lot of. domestic politics uh, behind that, um, you know, that the the news media, you know, Donald Trump really did break the media. Right. And there was Mm -hmm. a real desire to um, to to get rid of him in the United States. And that drove all of policy last year or drove. I wouldn't say drove all he was the president, but it drove all of the media's response. And so there was a you know, there's a real effort to frighten people. Schools have to remain closed You know, the situation can't go back to normal. Um, And interestingly, in Europe, Europe, you know, Europe has followed a similar but not exactly the same path as the U.S. And so the Europeans did reopen their schools. I mean, I would say they're, you know, they've tended to be older and more risk averse in general during, you know, during the last 18 months. But they did get their schools reopened because they didn't have that particular domestic policy consideration. Okay, so last summer there could have been an off ramp. I think this spring, same thing. You had the vaccines. You know, you had what we were in, what I call the happy vaccine valley. You know, the, that period of months when, uh, when the mRNA vaccines do seem to work. They, you know, they, they up everybody's antibodies. Cases were very low. You know, they were very low in the U.S. by the summer. Uh, they were at zero or, you know, not quite zero, but close to zero in Britain by the spring. Once again, the, the powers that be could have said, uh, you know what, we're going to, you know, there's going to be some cases, but we're just going to we're going to get out of the state of emergency. And they didn't. And it's, you know, it's increasingly troubling to me that they didn't and why they didn't. And, and the why people keep trying to get me to to answer the why. And I can't. OK, and I and I don't even like to sort of try to speculate too much because. It sounds very conspiratorial. Uh, You know, you can you you can very rapidly go down sort of rabbit holes. But I I will say this: when back in the in the spring of 2020, you know, these people people had been planning for. When I say planning for, I mean planning for a response to. Let's let's put it like that. They've been planning a response to a pandemic for a long time, and this is. You know, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy's book, I've not read all of it, but I've read the, you know, the chapter about the plans. And it is striking how many times senior people, uh, you know, in and out of government were sort of wargaming pandemic scenarios. And the war games basically tended to end the same way. Eventually, an effective vaccine is created and distributed. And it's pretty clear, you know, it just to, you know, not to be conspiratorial at all, Um, If you look at Neil Ferguson's paper that, you know, in some ways started all of this Mm -hmm. in March 2020, he was talking about the need for suppression of, you know, societal contact, mitigation, suppression until a vaccine was created. This is this was always viewed as the offer. We're going to have a vaccine. It's going to work. We're going to get back to normal Or, or or, you know, we'll get back to very close to normal. That was that was what we were promised. And then, you know, last November, we get a vaccine. You know, this time last year, we get a vaccine and the data look incredible. And then the real world data March through May look incredible. And I think I guess the powers that be thought this is going to end because of the vaccines. We're going to be able to give the vaccines credit and it'll be a great victory for science and all the anti, you know, all the anti lockdown people and all. We did it. We, we got through this. And on the other end of it, we are done with covid thanks to science, thanks to the vaccine. Unfortunately, the virus and the vaccines have not cooperated with that. The vaccines are not, you know, uh, they're not good enough. I, I mean, we can talk about their, their risks and, and, you know, these really disturbing trends in all-cause mortality that we're seeing now all over, really all over the world in heavily vaccinated countries. But, but at best, the vaccines are not good enough to put this in the rear view mirror for people who are frightened about it. For people who are not frightened about it, they're not frightened about it. They weren't frightened about it, and they continue not to be frightened about it. And then I think there's a fair number of people in the middle who were pretty scared last year, who were actually kind of okay with school closures last year, who are now done also. They've seen the schools reopen in the United States in 2021, and they don't understand what happened last year, and they don't want to go back. But the people who are driving policy are either in that group of people who are scared or are sort of democrats and technocrats who are beholden to that thirty to forty percent of the country that went into a ditch last March and can't get out, you know, because they're and some of, and a lot of these people are older and they are legitimately, uh, you know, somewhat more frightened of COVID. And some of them are just, I don't know, they think the world's going to end. They don't want to have kids, and they think you know climate change is going to kill us all next year. And they've been waiting for something terrible to happen. This is the terrible thing that's happened, and they can't let go of it. And they, you know, they're very loud. They're on there and they're, you know, a lot of them are in the media or they're in social media or they're running tech companies. And they um they they are on this like a dog on a bone and will not let go. And I don't know, Bill, this is all I'm saying. I don't know how we get out of it now. I mean, uh, you know, in the, I think the United States has a better chance, actually, than than Europe, for example, because the United States has you know, has a has a constitutional tradition of individual liberty, and it has a few more, you know, sort of Scots-Irish who, you know, live in the hills and don't, you know, don't. I mean, that is the tradition. Don't bother me. Don't tread on me. And, you know, there's enough of those people that, that the government, you know, isn't able to impose its will the way it seems to be in a place like Austria or Germany. So I think there's a better chance that U.S. gets out. But those of us it wasn't me, by the way, so I shouldn't say those of us, but the people who were waiting for the vaccine to end this or the people who are waiting for the vaccine to provide the excuse to end it. Right. Both have to acknowledge that the vaccines aren't going to be able to do that.
1: But how many booster programs we're going to have to go through before they decide that? Uh, doesn't it seem like that those two camps that you mentioned, which which makes sense from a logical standpoint, they could say, well, we will you know, there's still the unvaccinated or we need boosters and the third booster will get us and but I guess- uh, well i
2: give you i give you a heart, heart today um the, you know the israeli newspaper today reported and i've been waiting for this story because you know it was inevitable biologically uh they're talking about waning effectiveness of the booster and i did see that actually yeah so so uh you know at some point i think even the 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 most you know I don't want to say sheep but the most incurious person is going to ask why they have to line up for a booster every few months and by the way again there's there's real biology here right and the biology is we have no idea what a fourth fifth or even a even a third shot will do though we've not tested them properly.
1: Um, well, uh, so, I add, so, yeah. parenthetically, I, I, I did, said I didn't want to get into the weeds, but I but I am dying to ask you one question because I've not seen it discussed in the media. And maybe I missed it. Uh, you would know. I mean, I could put on my tinfoil hat and say, well, they did this because they didn't want to ever have to check the data from a safety standpoint. Were they being good guys, in your opinion, or did they do that to queer the trials or to, to, to queer the data, basically? Uh, I mean, I. I- I know you don't know.
2: This goes to motive, right? It had the effect of blowing up the trials. They would say, and they did say at the time, "This thing works. It's you know the side effects are minimal. Uh, We have an ongoing pandemic. These people volunteered for the trial. It is unethical not to deny them the active medicine. Uh, You know, and it was back in December, January. You know, they 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 were good soldiers. These folks they lined up for this. Um, They deserve it. And they would also say because the vaccine is going to be out there, uh, there's no effective way to keep people from getting it, even if they were trialless. I mean, I don't think that should have been allowed to happen. Okay, okay. I don't. The, the, the thing the FDA has said over and over again in the CDC is there's never been a case where there's been long-term vaccine injuries that didn't show up after six weeks. Um, and so, you know, we looked for 60 days after the second dose. Now, honestly... Uh, Look, I'm not anti-vax. I never had even really looked into vaccines before this. I assume that's true about vaccines, other vaccines. But at this point, I don't really trust anything about the public health establishment says. But let's assume it's true. Let's just assume that's correct. These vaccines are not like any other vaccines. So maybe we shouldn't have said, you know, 42 days, and we're now we're going to extend it to 60 days of data after the second dose is enough. Maybe these trials should go where we're at least collecting, oh, I don't know, a year of data on the placebo trial list. And by the way, it also was pretty clear that that group of trial subjects um, was at very low risk from COVID. How do we know? Because none of them died of COVID in the main portion of the mm. trial. And even afterwards, of the 40,000 people, only three people died of COVID related illness, two of whom were in the vaccine arm and one was in the placebo arm. But we are screwed in terms of knowing what the long term impact is. We will never have a clean data set and we can't get one. Why can't we get one? Because there aren't probably enough placebo or unvaccinated people right now who would be willing to go into a new trial. And worse than that, what would the trial be? From my point of view, it would be essentially a side effects trial, and that's unethical. You can't run a trial that demonstrate evidence of harm. I mean, right. the, that's like asking people to smoke. So we can never
0: have a clean trial now. Alex, I want to kind of take this in a slightly different direction, if I can, just briefly, because I've been fascinated at the coverage that you've received, and I'm curious to, to talk about this with you, because you know, you, you're a serious guy, right? You're, you're a journalist at the New York Times, you're a very well-respected journalist, written Novels, you covered Bernie Madoff, you've done all these things and had great credibility bestowed upon you. And one of the features of the age we live in is this you know, cancel culture. And while you haven't been canceled as such, you've decided to wade into a, a deeply politicized uh, pool and swim and take your best shot, like you've done with all those other stories you covered. Of course, you're going to have an opinion on it, you're going to research, you're going to come up with what you think is the story and you're going to report it. But you know, I, I've been fascinated to see th- the amount of vitriol that you've faced in the media from from doing your job, essentially, right? You know, I think The Atlantic called you like the wrongest man alive, which is just, I mean, ridiculous. But pandemic, only, only the pandemics, wrong. Oh, man, yeah, you're right. you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fine. <laughs> Fine. Okay. But 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 just let, let's talk for a minute about that because. Um, ha- How Did that catch you by surprise, the the reaction to your reporting? And if so, how do you handle going from that period of essentially unanimous respect, and people might disagree with you, but they respect you, to a, a place where you're being torn down by people who disagree with the conclusions that you come to?
2: Um, it didn't catch me by surprise because I had written this book about about cannabis. Yes. Oh, of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and so and so, you know, there was a, the the stakes. Were, I mean, I thought the stakes were high at the time, but obviously, you know, not nearly as high. But the the attitude was the same um, and the personal attacks were the same any unwillingness to acknowledge that maybe I was like, maybe I had a point. Maybe I was looking at this data in an interesting way. And, you know, maybe I'd actually talk to some scientists who've been, you know, doing this work. No, it was just, you know, correlation is not causation. Barrington is too dumb to understand this. Reefer madness. You know, and and, and I anticipated that the cannabis industry wouldn't like right. the book. Uh, and I anticipated that, you know, that the sort of the nonprofit drug policy alliances of the world wouldn't like the book. book but I didn't sort of see how deeply the media had fallen in love with the cannabis narrative and, and frankly how like how little they understood the science and how little they were willing to sort of question themselves or question whether or not maybe there were there were facts out there that they just didn't know so you know with covid it's been the same thing on a you know on a much much bigger scale and uh, you know I, I think i think with covid it's been much more um you know it, it's changed in real time Right when I wrote "Tell Your Children," I was writing about stuff. Some of the studies, were literally the right. first you know sort of major study to come out in 1987. So to me, the science is actually pretty settled, you know. And by the way, I say this in, in "Tell Your Children" just because I do that. I want to talk about it a little bit because I think it's important. Like you can know that cannabis causes psychosis in some people, and actually may cause, well, and likely does cause permanent psychosis, schizophrenia, in some vulnerable group of people, and still think it should be legal. Right? We alcohol is legal and it causes all kinds of problems. Tobacco kills, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the United States. You know, we didn't put anybody in from the tobacco companies in jail, and they still make lots of money selling the product. But let's acknowledge the risk. So, so that was the point of the book, really. I mean, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say nobody listened. There were people who listened, but the media response was fierce. Now, this has been that times a hundred. And so in April of last year, in April 2020, when the first stories were being written about me, these people came to me with questions, you know, for the Vanity Fair writer and a Vice writer. but the, And I tried to answer the questions, um, you know, completely. And I realized, you know what, they're just going to, like, try to look for holes and trash whatever I write. But what was really disturbing to me about the Vanity Fair person was... I said, "Look, here's my editor, my you know the person who hired me at the Times in 1999. Here's the person who was editing this business section in 2010 when I left. Here was my direct editor, who now is you know a, a professor at Columbia. Here is the person who published Tell Your Children, who also actually published my first nonfiction book, John Carp, who's a very you know senior person in publishing. Like talk to them about what kind of reporter I am. And you know none of that made its way into the story. I don't know if the person even talked to any of them." I think maybe he talked to one of them, but none of that, those people, he had no interest. He had no interest in finding out about me as a reporter. So I knew how it was going to be. The Atlantic piece, you know, was sort of a new level of vitriol, but I'd been picking on the Atlantic for its idiocy for a year. So I sort of expected that.
1: Do you think uh, as sort of a a subset of the initial big picture question about how do we get out of this government micromanagement of day-to-day life? Does the media have to get back to doing its job a bit first to expose some of the things that they haven't even been told? Or do they follow whatever happens and decide to do their jobs? Or will they never do them again? Do you guess? Um, I,
2: I, I don't know. That's a that's a really good question, too. I mean, I, I, to me, a lot of this has been media-driven, obviously, right? I mean, this is Vietnam, except the media is in McNamara's pocket, right? <laughs> like, no, it's really, yes, no, really... I agree. <laughs> And, 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 you know, and, and the academics aren't pocket, And so there you know, there's, there's so few of us, you know, asking questions. I wrote a sub stack last night, which, and the response has been enormous, surprising to me, how big the response has been. And the headline is, I mean, like when somebody says I'm a conspiracy theorist or discredited, uh, you know, show them this. And I went back, I, you know, I still subscribe to the New Yorker. Okay. I'm still like, I'm still that guy. I'm a class trader, but like, like I'm still the guy who you know went to Yale and wrote and wrote for the New York Times. I still read the New Yorker. Like, and I you know, and they had this piece about this uh, guy named Patrick soon who you know made a fortune, uh, you know, on a drug called Abraxane, which is basically Taxol in a you know in in a new package. And they used and and referenced a story I'd written in 2006 for the Times about Abraxane. Okay, and, like. That's fine. But that's the kind of reporter I was. That's the kind of reporter I am. That's the kind of reporter I will be. But what I said in this piece was, here look at what the New Yorker wrote, look at what I wrote 15 not you know not last month, 15 years ago about this. Unfortunately, because COVID and now especially the vaccines have become so politicized, I am literally the only investigative reporter who is asking serious questions about the vaccines. There's a couple other people who are asking questions. I mean, I'm not I'm not I'm not the only person in the world asking questions, but I'm the only person who is a journalist who is asking these questions. And it is crazy that that's true. I mean, and honestly, from my point of view, it means that people approach me constantly. Like, I mean, I'm overwhelmed. You, you know how hard it was for us to set this yeah, up. Exactly. Um, I am I am overwhelmed now. But you know, financially, this is you know, the Substack, even though it's essentially free, uh, you know, many people are paying me now. They're clearly doing that, not because you know they have to, they're doing it because they want to support this, they feel there's stuff they're not being told and, and they're correct. But it is crazy, Bill. Mm-hmm. You know? that I am the only person doing this, the only serious reporter doing this. It is a huge failure of journalism. It's a huge failure of the market, honestly, and how the media, like, at least starts asking questions. Like, you could, I, I can't even remember, and now my Twitter, you know, my Twitter is gone, although I have it. A few months ago, I'm talking about seven, eight months ago, I said, Look, you don't want to come off as an anti-vaxxer, but you want to do your job as an investigative reporter. Here's four or five questions about the vaccines you can ask that are legitimate questions that aren't like, oh, there's graphene oxide or nanoparticles in this. Like, ask a question about the trial design or, you know, ask a question about why the, the placebo, uh, you know, recipients were given uh, the, the the vaccine so quickly. You know, ask this, ask that. Nobody did any of it. There's this feeling that to ask any questions about the vaccines is, I don't know what, it's like, it's like, it's like you're breaking some unwritten law. I I don't understand.
0: Alex, let me ask you then, because in the kind of sphere that this podcast series started, the the world of finance, you know, we're talking about an end game and we're talking about the end of a financial system that's kind of reached the end of its useful life. And this has happened many times through history. It's not such a huge thing. It is in the moment, but history will look back on it and go, well, yeah, of course that was going to run its course. And we've kind of watched that happen. And, and when you get to those points in the cycle, the end of a, a, a system where it's struggling to maintain itself and everything's being done to prop it up, it's like shooting fish in a barrel for reporters to find examples of fraud and graft and corruption. And because- it's really only those things that maintain these systems beyond their useful life. So, why is it? Do you think that there is, is such there a, a sickle element to it too, where people yeah, just reach absolutely in with both hands, Ab- absolutely right. And, and we're and we're watching it. We're watching it happen every day in the news. And the stories are right there about all the greed and the corruption and, the, and the, you know the Musk and the Bezos and, the, and all this stuff that we're seeing. It's right in front of us. But I've just been staggered that. To your point about investigative reporters, that style of journalism seems to have just gone. And I, I, I've long held this belief that there would come a moment for the journalism profession where exposing these things would be the career-making story, and that's what would drive people to follow that story. Because you know, I can, I can win a Pulitzer, I can become a big name here instead of relying on the clickbait stuff and eyeballs and all that to get paid, am I just being completely naive, thinking that that style of journalism will have its day again? Is the system set up so that doesn't happen? I don't know.
2: (laughs) On the one hand, so, you know, my career is blown to smithereens. You know, as I I joke, it's not really a joke. You know, it's not just that the ship has sailed for me in the New York Times. The ship has been shot into the sun, right? (laughs) On the other hand, like, I am better known than I've ever been and uh, and there's a lot of people who who like me there's a lot of people who don't like me but there's a lot of people who like me and um you know and financially it's been you know it's been lucrative you know which is not why I'm doing this but but you know you would think people would see that and you know at least you know realize that you can get paid to write what the truth that other people are not writing. But you know the obstacles are real too. You know I've just heard now from multiple people that companies are now blocking access to my Substack. Right. <laughs> so you know you can't you can't get you know through corporate intranets. Um, so it would be better if the New York Times were doing its job and the you know and the Washington Post were doing their its job. But I, I don't know how we get back to that. You know the the base of the Times you know is this group of people who don't want to be challenged about this. You know, so look, David Leonhardt is an old buddy of mine. We went to, you know, we went to Yale together and, you know, he writes this morning newsletter for the Times and he uh, occasionally kind of sort of tiptoes around uncomfortable facts around COVID. I mean, they're like very basic facts. Like, you know, your children are essentially no risk from COVID. You know, David has written that a handful of times, okay? And I would say that's as far out on a limb as he has gone. And he has faced real blowback from readers for that. So if you can't even say that, I mean, well, you know, how do you possibly get to the point where you can start asking challenging questions about the vaccines? Um, now, look, you, you know, it, I think anybody who thinks they can predict even six months ahead is crazy. And, you know, certainly three years, five. Who knows? Who knows what it's going to look like? Right. Journalism, finance. Covid, so maybe the pendulum will swing back. But it, you know, everything goes one way, and then you know, it, then eventually it turns. But but the pendulum has been swinging away from this kind of challenging investigative reporting for a while. You're certainly, you're certainly right.
1: Um, and 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 thus far, you, you're not seeing any small signs of that changing. I, I'm gathering by the way you said what you said.
2: Uh, yes that's true and, and people you know somebody i know said to me he said you know do you have a lot of journalists out there who are who are quietly saying to you you know i'm on your side and the answer to that question is no really? i have a lot of scientists saying that i have okay. a lot of scientists right. and physicians who quietly talk to me and who say, you know you can't you know I, I, they, i'll lose my job you know but you should know about this study or look at this paper or here's what we're seeing in this hospital i i got a lot of that but i do not have a lot of people i have a couple, but I do not have a lot of people saying to me, I work for, you know, the journal or the New York times and, and, you know, I'm with you. Like we are with you
1: internally. Well, that's a- another subset of the imponderable aspect of how does this end is the this, this draconian and, and sort of disturbing trend towards out and out blatant censorship. To me, it's really shocking that that this has gone as far as it has, uh, the censorship. Uh, obviously, you experienced it firsthand. And again, I wonder when, when, when this trend is going to. I mean, which one of these trends ends first? Uh, I, I, I can't. I can't figure that out. I know the pendulum can only go so far, but geez, I mean, it, so far there, I don't see any trend in the censorship coming back this way. Where is the ACLU for Christ's sake? Or CACLU. Right. I mean, I think that there are judges out there who, uh, I
2: mean, part of the problem is the way Section 230 has been interpreted, right. which is just right. insane. Okay. It's clearly, these are clearly vital public spaces. And, um, you know, and they have, and they should have a legal, you know, responsibility, if not requirement, to essentially allow speech. Okay. And, and 230 was designed to protect them from being sued if they put up, you know, uh, revenge porn. Which is fine. Like they shouldn't be sued for that. It wasn't designed to make them arbiters of the public sphere. But that's how it's been interpreted. And look, I I, you know, I say in the book in pandemia, which is going to be out next week. And I'm, I'm to get I gotta get you a copy of which I will. You know, I am considering my legal options, which I still am. I, I will have more to say about this soon. 230 is 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 very strong protection for the companies. It is not perfect protection, and there are there are claims that I have. Which uh, which I think are very interesting, but the way it's been interpreted has been a, has been a quite a shield for Twitter and and everybody else. But where where's the where's the New York Times? Where these people, these legacy media outlets, are cheering on yeah censorship, which is
1: insane. Yeah, that to me, out of all the crazy stuff we've seen, the embracing of censorship amongst the the group of people who always put free speech and and we don't trust big pharma and big government it's like there's this insane new set of bedfellows of people that heretofore had been quite liberal and, and didn't like any of those things now they like them all including censorship and i i just i i, I, don't, I don't understand how they got here and i don't see how, how they get themselves away from it i just know eventually that has to happen at least i hope it does
2: well, I mean, you, you know, you say it's funny, like there is one other, uh, and this is actually the, the total intersection of everything we're talking about. Is it possible that the payments processors are, are going to come after people like me, right? Like this has been discussed. It's, you know, that Stripe, uh, you know, is going to say, well, you know, this speech is dangerous, so we're not going to process payments for him. I mean, I, I don't think that's going to happen. That would be insane. But like, could it happen? Uh, sure, it could happen.
0: But it's, it's much less of a stretch to see it happening than it should be. That, that's the problem, I think. You know, that's kind of where we've reached. Coming back to this this idea of you know, off-ramps for governments, what I've been constantly fascinated by is the precariousness of just about every Western democracy at the moment. And, and when I look at that, I don't see any leaders in a Western country. You know, Angela Merkel was the closest thing we've had, and she's gone. But Biden isn't a leader. Boris Johnson in England is not a leader. Scott Morrison in Australia, Trudeau, you know, pick one. They're, they're popular characters with a lot of people, but they're not leaders. And so when I, when I look at the way these governments react to the COVID data and talking what you said earlier about off-ramps, you know, it seems to me that anyone that stood up in front of a nation and reassured them and said, look, to your point, the pandemic is still here. We've kind of got through the worst of it. It's still going to be around, but here's what we're doing we're not going to continue to count the cases, but we are monitoring it. We're going to, you know, just reassure the public. And I just wonder, you know, if 51% of the population believed that that was the way to go, I suspect all of these leaders would get the data and they'd turn around on a sixpence and just say, okay, here's what we're going to do now because it polls well and we are so fragile and we desperately in need of votes. But right now, uh, people that that... That, that, as you say, want the protection and fear of thing is probably sixty percent, and that's enough. And policy is driven by poll numbers rather than efficacy.
2: Well, let me give you the you know the the the, the shining example of this, right? Which is Ron DeSantis. You know, Ron DeSantis has stood up in the face of incredible media and public pressure, or not public, but some public pressure last year, but incredible media, public health, uh, government pressure. And he said, I'm going to do what I think is right. I'm going to follow the data, whether it's, you know, we're not sending, uh, you know, infected people back to nursing homes, or we're going to, you know, we're going to make sure we have plenty of monoclonal antibodies available. And we're not going to, you know, we're not going to, we're going to get our schools open. We're not going to mask. He's done it and he's going to win re-election. And he, you know, I don't know enough about Republican internal dynamics to know, but, you know, if Trump, if Trump gets out of the way, or maybe if Trump doesn't get out of the way, Ron DeSantis is going to be the leading candidate to be the Republican uh, presidential nominee in 2024. So, so Ron DeSantis has been courageous. And it was ugly for him last year, but he has won, I would say. I mean, you look at his numbers and they're good. You know, Andrew Cuomo might be in jail next year and Ron DeSantis, you know, might be uh, the leading presidential candidate. So, you know, courage is rewarded, I think, or at least in that case it is. I think in Europe it's even harder. Like I said, it's an older population. It's a less risk tolerant population. And you know, Europe—it just kind of feels like the candle of Europe is sort of sputtering out, doesn't it? I mean, you know, like literally, they're so concerned about climate change that they're not going to have heat this
1: winter. Right.
2: I mean, how right. how crazy is that? But you, you know, you you mentioned yeah, at the national level, there isn't a lot of hope. But DeSantis, I think, is somebody who has shown. That and by the way, Florida's had a lot of deaths, right? They've had a lot of COVID deaths, right? It's not like they've escaped this. This is not New Zealand, they have paid a price. But people have said, We know who's dying, we know that you know there's a lot of elderly people in Florida, and we've managed this, and life has gone on.
1: That's sort of like the way Sweden never gets talked about now, vis a vis other countries. I mean, so the, as part of the, the journalistic world not doing its job. You can find this data, but it's not where the average person might see it, where you could say, hmm, you don't have to decide who's right and who's wrong. You say, well, why did Sweden turn out this way? What did they do? And why did, you know, pick your neighbor country you want to use? How come they turned out that way? Or let's look at Florida, New York or any of these things, because instantly, as you say those words, it's all politics. Oh, you must you must be a anti-vaccine, racist, white supremacist, blah, 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 Instead of saying we'd like to know the answer to this question, because this has not only health ramifications, but it has large economic ones as well, right? Very large economic ones. And so, political. Yes, yes, yes. So, I again, I, I we can't answer these questions, but there's an the intersection of all these things. Um, and I don't know which trend changes first to change the others. If DeSantis was to run... I could imagine the media doubling down on the hatred side of things before they'd want to like look objectively at why Florida it turned out. But maybe I'll be wrong about that. I hope I'm wrong. No, about you're,
2: that. You're, you're probably right, but he might win anyway. I mean, my joke, and it's not a joke, is the worst thing in terms of like the vaccines and research into the vaccines was Trump losing. OK, if Trump had won again and pushed the vaccines, the media would be much more aggressive about covering all these problems.
0: Alex, let me ask you, what I've struggled all the way through this is that the data available to me as someone who's not in the field of science is overwhelming. And what I found fascinating is I can find very credible, very credentialed scientists at the extreme opposite ends of this debate. And I can find well-researched, credentialed research telling me this is a complete waste of time. And it's the most serious thing we've faced ever. And for me personally, I, I have friends who I have a tremendous amount of respect for on both ends of this debate. And so I've struggled to figure out what to do about that as just as an individual, because it gets to the point where there's really not much point in having the debate because everyone's made up their mind and everyone has the data and the science to back it up. So you're both screaming into the void. We say, "Yeah, but Doctor So and So said this, and Doctor So and So said that." Why is it that there does exist these two completely opposite views, all backed up by science? And what should we, in the middle, trying to make sense of it, what should we do about that?
2: I mean, I think we're talking about we're talking about a couple of different things. Here.
0: I would disagree with you that
2: there's a lot of debate about the sort of immediate impact of COVID. The the risk of COVID. I would say those risks have actually been defined and known almost since the beginning of the uh, of the pandemic. And again, if you if you look at Ferguson's paper, that seminal paper from March of 2020, it was only a couple months in. It was very very clear that the stratification by age was by far the most important risk factor. That people, younger people, were just at very very low risk from COVID. And to me, that's the most sort of salient point in the public health response, you know, and has been all along. Now, since then, there, you know, you can debate. There's been various subcategories. I think almost all of which have been resolved the same way. Um, for example, uh, you know, the issue about schools. Well, you know. Uh, It turns out that leaving schools open is the right idea because children don't really spread COVID to to one another very much. They tend to get it from adults. Okay, so we didn't know that in March 2020. But we knew the underlying fact, the most important fact, which was that even if kids did get it, they weren't going to be at a lot of risk. You know, and we knew basically at the beginning of 2020 that masks didn't do anything. Okay, that was basically received wisdom, not just received wisdom. It was based on clinical trials. Okay, so. You know, I think that, you know, that crucial fact was known. Um, and I don't think there's been too much real data to support masking. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, sort of standard cloth or even surgical masking since then. You know, the Danish paper that came out in, in November of 2020 backed that up. Um, you know, since then, there's been one paper of any importance that that showed anything different. This was this big Bangladeshi study that came out. In August, that sort of claimed that community masking could actually be somewhat valuable. That paper has huge problems. And by the way, even if you believe it, it showed about a ten percent risk reduction uh, from masking. So, you know, that's not going to drive the course of the pandemic. So, so okay. So on some issues, I think we've known a lot for a long time. Okay, the most important being again where the risks of COVID are. Now again, over time, we've I think we've gotten better at figuring out exactly what the risks are, and they tended to go down. You know, I think initially there was that 1% figure, then it was 0.7. now I think most people would say it's really in the overall fatality rate of COVID is in the 0.3% range. Maybe it's a little bit higher in advanced countries with older populations. And certainly it's lower in places like Africa. But, you know, we know what the risks are. OK, one thing that I think is still under debate is how lockdowns work and what they do and we you know how they work short term, how they work long term. I, you know, there's a lot of back and forth on that. Per, my personal belief is that lockdowns are always imposed either too early or too late, because that's what they are. Either they arrest the pandemic at incredible societal cost when it's early, like New Zealand, and there aren't a lot of cases, but then eventually you have to open your borders again and get people back to normal. And then all those people who weren't infected get infected, by the way, this is what the vaccines were supposed to, you know, the vaccines were going to be the thing that proved that New Zealand had done it right, only the vaccines don't really work well enough to do that. A lockdown imposed too late can actually have a paradoxically negative effect, meaning if there's a lot of COVID in the community and you force people into their homes, you actually increase spread in the short term, intrafamilially, and this is known, Okay. And probably you're you're exposing vulnerable people who wouldn't be on the streets, who wouldn't be out to family members who are infected. This this and the WHO actually talked about that fact. But there are legitimate scientists on the other side, you know, who say, look, if you, you know, and you can look at this set of data around lockdowns. Look at New Zealand; it did work combined with border closures. You know, look at China. We oh, who knows what happened in China, but but lockdowns are a debate. But the fundamental issues around COVID. Uh, and its risks, to me, we've known a lot for a long time. So, okay, let's talk about the vaccines. The vaccines are the big open question. And the data is still emerging, in part because these are so new and they're changing biologically. Our bodies, the bodies of people who are vaccinated are changing. They are The antibody levels are declining things are changing on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. And, you know, societally, Israel in April was the greatest evidence of vaccine success you could have. Israel in July was evidence of complete vaccine failure. That's only three months difference. So I agree that on the vaccines, we are still learning a lot. And so people are having sort of legitimate arguments based on incomplete data sets and incomplete understanding of biology and incomplete understanding of science. You know, we just don't know things about these vaccines. I would say long COVID is another, most people would say, oh, we're still learning about long COVID. My view about long COVID, and this is the thing that probably causes me the most agitate, even the ones who agree with me for the most part, I think long COVID is essentially bullshit. Not for people who got really sick with COVID, but for people who, didn't have a severe case of covid you know if you look at the sort of constellation of symptoms it looks exactly like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue all these sort of ill-defined disorders of modern life and uh, and and i think that's almost certainly what long covid is but there are you know there are people out there who say we just don't know yet so i would agree about long covid that there's you know there's still some room for scientific debate even though i don't see much and i would certainly agree about the vaccines there's a lot we don't know and so that's why you're seeing this fierce, fierce debate about the vaccines. Uh, To me, when there's this much uncertainty about the vaccines and this much of a novel mechanism of action, the prudent course is to go slow, to vaccinate the people at highest risk only, and to see what happens, and certainly not to vaccinate children or young adults who are at low risk. But that is not the course of action that the public health authorities and governments have taken.
1: So uh, why don't you tell... uh... Those that don't know about your book, it's about to come out, right? So yeah, the book is called uh, Pandemia.
2: I wrote it this you know this year. It is a, uh, it is you know I'd written these four unreported truths pamphlets. One was about sort of generally how we counted deaths in just the beginning of the pandemic. One was about lockdowns. One was about masks. One was about vaccines. This is a more sort of global look at everything that's happened. And and I will say this, I you know only about. Ten percent or less of the book is from the pamphlets. Really, even less. You can have read all four of them, and I think Pandemia will be interesting to you. It's also I'm about I don't know fifteen percent of the book because one of the things that you know happened to me last year was my father died, um, not of COVID. Uh, he died of leukemia in May of 2020. And I think you know there there might be people out there who say, well, you know, look, this is why this guy is so angry about all this. Uh, you know, his dad died and nobody cared because it wasn't COVID. I mean, I would say that I think the fact that you know we we don't seem to care very much about the deaths of people or problems with society that are not COVID-related has been a huge flaw in our response to this. Does my personal does the fact that I personally lost my dad play a role? Possibly, it does. You know, uh, you know, I'm I'm a person like everybody else. I have you know personal motivations like everybody else. Uh, you know, so there's there's a little bit of me in the book, but mainly it's just about the last 18 months, and then of course now since I've been forced off Twitter and censored by Twitter um, and defamed by Twitter, uh, I have this sub stack where people can go and kind of see me pour out stuff on a daily basis. And, you know, that has almost 200,000 subscribers now. Now, most of those people don't pay. And as I say to everybody, whether or not you pay, you basically get the same product. Every once in a while, I put up something behind the paywall just kind of to remind people who did pay that they're getting something. But really, you know, I don't care whether or not you pay. My audience, my goal is to have the biggest possible audience, but the book, um, you know, it'll be out next week. It's fascinating, you know, um, RFK, you know, that book, it's been basically number one or two or three on Amazon for a week. It has sold a massive number of copies. You know, if the Times isn't messing up its uh, bestseller list, it should be number one on the hardcover
1: nonfiction. It's sold out at Amazon, either that or they aren't letting people buy it. I mean, it depends on your point of view.
2: Yes. Yes. I I think I think in this case, Amazon will sell all the copies they can get their hands on. But people are desperate for information. People feel that they've been lied to, that they can't trust the media. And they, you know, you know, Scott Atlas has his book coming out the week after next, you know, and maybe between the Kennedy book, you know, the the Kennedy book, you know, he is a little bit more conspiratorial. I mean, he leans that way a little bit. And as I say to people and say, well, you know, He can be a little conspiratorial. I said, you know, if your father and uncle were assassinated, you might be a little bit conspiratorial too. And my book is sort of more of a journalistic, you know, look at the last 18 to 20 months. And then Scott's book, I haven't read it yet, but, uh, you know, it's from the inside. So maybe between the three of us, we will be able to at least get people thinking a little bit.
1: Well, that would be wonderful, particularly if we could inspire your previous compatriots in the in the journalism industry to start digging into things. I th- I never really appreciated how much we need a media to ask questions, but now that we see that everything is turned into Pravda essentially, I, I can see the value of what we used to take for granted. It's
2: it's great. Cr- so, Bill, I got to ask you, what's going to happen to the financial system? I mean, well, are we? Uh, what's going down?
1: <laughs> well. We have a body of work, Alex. You don't have time to go listen to, but the, the bottom line is, uh, and I'll give you the cliff notes on the way I see the setup. And Grant, you can jump in if you need to uh, correct me. Between the combination of QE, the massive amount of the market that is bid up because of the the, the size of the passive vanguards of the world in pandex, passive index industry, has allowed the market to go to a place that it's never really been before. When you look at you know margin debt or price to sales or stock prices to GDP. Any valuation measures you want to look at are off the Richter scale and nothing seems to matter. this
2: This is all being supported by negative
1: interest rates, basically? That's what got the party started. I believe that it would have ended, but for this passive bid that is in the stock market, if the stock market started to crack, I think that would take the speculation out of the NFTs and out of the cryptos to some degree perhaps not in cryptos, I don't know for sure, but there's a lot of just pure, we're chasing this because it's going up and because we own it, then we decide we repeat the narrative that goes with that thing. Interesting that the stock market, the average stock has gone sideways now, probably since the last spring, and there's some real train wrecks beneath the surface, but the market holds together. If the market starts to have a problem, the fact that we have this much inflation now, is put the, the central banks in the penalty box. Because if the market is able to decline for some reason, we we, we have a, a wobble and then it feeds on itself because of the structures that allowed it to get here break, then the Fed is trapped. They either have to back away from trying to fight inflation or they have to try to support the asset market. And in, in that moment, that's going to be the defining moment. But the inflation genie getting out of the bottle is the thing that stops the central banks from being able to do whatever they wanted over the course of the last 25 years. And so we're at a moment in time where that's liable to change sometime in the next year. Exactly when or how I can't say, but we're at least at a moment in time where something's going to happen.
2: But but so there's no my my fantasy that Paul Volcker, you know, comes. I mean, he's still alive, but, you know, comes back and says the grownups are back in charge. We are going to raise rates because we have to, because inflation is rising. That's not going to
1: happen. That That's not on the table at all. I, I don't think so. One of the questions we always ask on this podcast usually is, you know, how does this get stopped? And sort of, the, I think, Grant, correct me if, you, if, if I'm wrong. I think everyone has sort of agreed that if we have inflation, some people don't think we're really going to have inflation. But if we have inflation, then you tie the hands of the central banks and then all of a sudden you can have an accident because if inflation was going to run at, say, three to five for a, a long group of years, you, you would think that people buying bonds would change their behavior and you wouldn't be able to have a ten year at 160 or 170. And when the bond market finally stops allowing this for whatever reason then the world's going to change financially. And then we don't know what's going to happen. Are they going to try to print their way past it anyway? There's, there's no sign of the horizon that we'll have any, any Volcker-like thing. And the debt to GDP is so much higher now than it was in 1980. I don't know if the country could take it if we, if we jacked rates up that meaningfully. I know the stock market but so, so
2: this, is a, this is a simplistic question. That tells you how little attention I've been paying this. How much of that 1.6 or 1.7 10 year is directly propped by the fed buying bonds at this point or, or you know, like like it, the private the pri- private investors are supporting that number because it just seems
1: impossible well it's not knowable exactly how much and it does have an impact but I think really, if you, if you look at bond markets, they tend to be generational. This bull market has gone on since 1981. The prior bear market went on for 30 or 40 years. And if you think about it now, people have become conditionably, we can't really have inflation. It's a problem. That's why per first we weren't going to have inflation. Then it was going to become transitory. Now transitory is going to be a little longer than expected to be. But people have developed muscle memory. Financial muscle memory. And so they say, well, then look in the rearview mirror. Well, this hasn't been a problem. And so I need yield because I'm running a, a And something has to happen that breaks that psychology. This is my theory. But it's just it's gone on so long. For instance, they just did a poll of uh, professional financial types. And maybe it was a couple of months ago, 50-some percent believed that inflation would be transitory. Now it's up to 61 Oh. So as the data's gotten worse, people said, well, now for sure it can't get any worse. We got to start seeing some better numbers. So it's like, how do we get the lives back from the COVID regime? It, answering right. this is unknowable. The only difference is now we've got a blocker in place in the form of inflation that's going to force them to tighten more than they want to sooner or be pressured to or not, and then change psychology. So in the next six months, I would say we're going to learn a lot. The other thing I would add um, to that, Alex, is that
0: this um, you know, financial journalism has been a, a forerunner to mainstream journalism in that. No, no, in, in that. I mean, Bill's laughing. <laughs> no, 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 I know. It, I, know in no, that,
1: no. I thought that financial journalism has become oxymoron, yeah, right, but I right, didn't reject right. <laughs> but,
0: but, you know, for the longest time, it's been a case of, okay, what do people want to read? Uh, people want to read that everything's going up. We've looked at the advertising numbers for CNBC, and we realized that when stock markets are falling... People don't want to watch it. They don't want to watch their portfolios go down. So we need a positive spin on things to keep people coming back, to keep them in the game, to keep energised about everything. And so you've seen a dearth of real journalism in in mainstream financial press. You know, we we had not that long ago, there was a big Financial Times investigation into a wire card. Now, that was absolutely an outlier to see that kind of journalism come back and, and, and the amount of abuse that Dan McCrum and the rest of the team that were reporting on that story took, both from the company using the pulpit of the press to beat them down and sue them and have the regulators sue them for misinformation. You know, it's become, in in the finance world, it's become very difficult to, as you found out in the mainstream world, to take on the mainstream narrative with a contrary story that may say, hey, guys, you know what? Everything's not as it seems. Here's what's really going on. And so as we've seen that happen in financial journalism over the last 10, 15, 20 years, it's now bled into mainstream journalism. And so now you're getting this idea that someone like you who will come out and say, hey, look, I don't know, but here's what I think and here's the data I'm using to back up my own conclusions. You can draw your own, but here's, you know, that has become you're a liar, right? It's not these are my opinions and here's how I reach them. Now go away, read it or don't read it, but make your own mind. No, you're a liar because you're not saying what we need people to hear. And the power of the pulpit has become so strong. And when I look at Substack and I look at platforms like that, that that give the ability to the man in the street to have a platform, say, look, okay, look, I can't go on MSNBC or CNN.com and have my story. I can put it out myself. To see guys like you and others get cancelled from those platforms is, for me, perhaps the most terrifying thing, because we are reaching that point where, hey, look, what Alex Berenson says... Listen, we should keep people from that. Let them make up their own mind. But to cancel guys like you and plenty more like you, this is not about you, plenty more like you who've, who've had their Twitter taken away, their Substack taken away. It's terrifying to me, that kind of thing. I mean, you know, when, when could we not trust people to make up their own minds about what they read? It's yeah. frightening.
2: It feels fundamentally un-American and un-Western and dangerous. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, guys, it's been a tremendous pleasure. I'm sorry it was so hard to set up, but I think we, we're doing it at a great time. And, uh, you know, in, in six months more, maybe we come back and do it again. That'll be fun.
0: I- look, look forward to it, Alex. Thanks exactly, for your time. Yeah. And good really luck with the book launch it. next week, Alex. Yes.
1: Thanks, guys. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, there we go. Do we need it? Oh, do we need to we, – uh, well, I guess we don't need to do the outtake where we give his Twitter handle because he doesn't have, <laughs> he does not have to do that, but, uh, but, you know, he has the Substack, and people can
0: go to uh, to Alex Berenson's Substack, which is uh, where you can find out all the information. Obviously, he's got the book Pandemia coming out next week. For me, that was really interesting. And, and I, you know, sadly, there will be a lot of people who either didn't start listening to this podcast because they saw where the guest was uh, and some who turned it off halfway through because they decided – ah, uh, this guy, I don't like him, which I think is a great shame. You know, I'm I'm neither a, a, a critic or a fan of Alex's per se. I read his stuff and I'm interested in it. But I, I thought it was great to, to hear someone like that have a chance to speak and understand a little bit better where he gets his ideas from and, and, and how he thinks about the world. I think it's so, it's so important for all of us these days to do that and listen to people who, who challenge you and, and who perhaps don't agree with your own point of view.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's a certain amount of people that will, be mad at us and cancel us or whatever but as we said in the beginning this isn't just purely about health there's an economic financial and all this is wound in together and more importantly the censorship freedom totalitarian aspect of things we've seen going on in these these uh non-vax camps and stuff like that i mean i just think it's important to to, to somehow have a dialogue about these things and so i hope the people that people are mad at us realize that our motives were pure so to speak absolutely and uh you know in any case uh i i thought that was quite interesting so i'm 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 glad we were able to do it good well listen uh that's all from us thank you
0: again for listening um if you if you want to follow our experience you'll find him on substack that's the best place to go and say he has got a book coming out next week pandemia um which i guarantee will be available at amazon and until maybe it gets cancelled who knows but i would think it'd be there at the beginning if you don't follow us on Twitter, you can still do that. You'll find me at T T M
1: Y G H, and and I'm still at, at Fleck Fleckcap. He's still there. All right, mate. Yeah, There uh, I am. Until the next time. Alrighty. See you, buddy. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Same All to right. you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.